You can forget a lot of things, Foster Care Nation, but never forget this. You're listening to Unparalleled Studios. I signal. Foster Care Nation, listen up. This is Foster Care and Unparalleled Journey. Strength for the powerless. Courage for the fearful. Hope and healing for wounded hearts. Hello and welcome back to Foster Care, an unparalleled journey with Jason and Amanda. See, I told you guys, she is still alive. I don't have her like killed and hidden in a freezer in a basement or anything. We just don't have any any uh, appointments today, so she showed up today. Yeah, welcome back for after the long hiatus. Today we have CJ playing with us today. How are you doing today, CJ? I'm amazing, guys. How are you? Uh, I'm so weirded out calling the wrong person CJ because, uh, as I mentioned to you before we started, that's my son's name. And so, yeah, I'm going, I feel weird like calling the wrong person CJ, but there, there are, I guess, more than one CJ in the world. You know, we, yeah. Uh, the only other CJ I ever met in, was when I was in the military. He was a, a pararescue jumper, which we affectionately call PJs, and he was CJ the PJ. <laughs> <laughs> there, there's a few nights of drinking. I'm pretty certain he was involved in, and we don't tell those stories anymore, even though the statute of limitations has probably run out. So, yeah, it's good to have you today, uh, CJ. But uh, your story is it's a, an interesting one. So why don't you just tell us how you got started in the foster care system? My, my dad married my stepmother. I was about seven years old, 1978. Um, before they even married her and I had a adversarial, <laughs> to say the least, relationship. Uh, it never improved. And uh, I was 14. I come home one day. She started in, sorry, started in on some stuff and it just progressively got worse um she shoved me into a refrigerator i picked a frying pan up and smacked her upside the head with it (laughs) and i was just like all right i gotta go i just my dad's a truck driver he's been a truck driver for 52 years so he was never home essentially he would be home maybe two days a month so i was kind of stuck with her and just dealing with whatever the fallout of that was and at a friend who rode the bus he lived about a mile down the road and me being 14 having no understanding of anything really i thought you know what i don't want to live here anymore i'm going to go live with jerry because he's in a foster home i'll just live there with him so i went down the road and i knocked on the door and he got his foster dad and I said, you know, can I live here? And he, well, it doesn't work that way. You have to. So the worker come out and pick me up and I explained everything. My dad had come home that night. The worker went down to speak to my dad and my dad basically demanded she leave the property and just, you know, wanted nothing to do with it. So I was placed in a foster home, (laughs) Uh, not that particular one, but another one. And I was there for about four years, almost just under four years. I was in foster care. Uh, I was in 
man, I think I was in 28 foster homes in four years, somewhere around there. Um, it was, it was a ton. Like I, I was a horrible kid. Uh, I had the mindset of, um, if you don't care about me, I don't care about you. So, uh, I was as disruptive and destructive as you could be. It was me lashing back at a system that didn't give a crap about me basically. And I, uh, I regret it now that I didn't take opportunities that were available to me, but I was angry. And uh, the one thing I've always been very, very good at is destruction. So (laughs) you are a kid though. And that doesn't make you a bad kid. That makes you a kid that was looking for connection and love. That's not a bad kid. Yeah. My biggest problem was, is I have a 156 IQ. I read 700 words a minute. So I was extremely bored most of the time because I was smarter than half of the people that I had to deal with on a day-to-day basis as far as the workers, the, you know, the just people in general. And even being in foster care, the very first lawyer they gave me, ad child advocate, he was completely worthless. He didn't give two craps. He wouldn't listen to anything I asked or said. And I demanded to act as my own attorney. And the judge thought I was insane, but he said, I'll give you a chance. And I spent the next three weeks at the library researching everything I could about probate law and whatnot. And I defended or I acted as my own attorney and I did well enough that judge Prizel essentially allowed me <laughs> to act as my own advocate. I had to have an, an adult advocate with me, but I was allowed to ask questions and I was allowed to question people where the majority wouldn't get that opportunity because I demonstrated that I had a knowledge that most people didn't have. So that's kind of amazing because most kids don't get to advocate for themselves. Nobody's listening to what they have to say and essentially they're lost. Yeah. So that's really neat that the judge was able to look past some of that and be like, okay, let's do this. You know, that's, that's when, you know, you have a judge that kind of cares about what he's doing. Yeah, Judge Prizer was an amazing judge. He was a judge for probably 48 years or so before he retired. Um, An amazing person. And he did so much for kids in that that county uh, where I was. But he, uh, he had his own way of doing things. And you had to, you definitely had to demonstrate to him. And you had to prove yourself. It wasn't just given. Um, I remember when I took the GED, I angered him greatly because I had been through so many foster homes. I wasn't going to graduate. I was so far behind that when I finally, I started in this county, got put into a private foster care company. So I was moving all over the state of Michigan. 
I was in probably seven different counties over the four years. And by the time I ended up back in the original county, they said, you should have this many credits, but you only have a third of those. You're not going to graduate. I said, let me get my GED. Judge Prizo said, okay, great. We're going to put you in these classes. These are preparatory classes to prepare you for it. I went the first day, read through the entire book, <laughs> was bored after an hour, asked the teacher, can I take the test now? She said, oh, you can't take the test now. You've only been here one day. I said, oh, I'm ready to take the test. It's impossible. You never, ever pass it. So when she dismissed us for the day, I walked down to the adult education building and I said, I'm here to take the GED test. And the woman was like, okay, here's the first test. And I took the first test. It took me 20 minutes. I took the second test. I took the third test. I took the fourth test. Then I went back the next morning and I took the final test, which was the writing part. They called Judge Prizel to tell him that I had taken all of the tests over a four-hour period. He called me and he was furious. You're going to fail all of these tests. You didn't allow yourself to prepare all of this crap. And I was like, look, I passed the test. I promise you. That's impossible. No, there's no way you could. Three days later, the test come back. Not only did I pass the GED, uh, out of a 65 score that you could achieve at that time, uh, I had achieved a 63.7 average score. <laughs> that's that's a decent score, I think. Yeah. It was the top 1% in the nation of that year. 63.7 is probably what my average grade was in most of my classes <laughs> yeah. in high school. <laughs> so when Judge Prizel seen the score, he was kind of like, did you cheat? And I was like, how did I cheat? I was sitting in a room with seven people watching me, you know? And he was just, again, he was like, you need to just go do something. You are too smart to, and that was always my problem. I was too smart for my own good. And I joined the military because <laughs> what else are you going to do at 18 years old when you have nowhere to go, no money and a GED and even joining the military was a debacle because I took the ASVAB. I scored a 91 on the ASVAB. And they immediately said, you cheated. <laughs> I didn't cheat. There's no way a 10th grader or there's no way an 18-year-old with a 10th grade education or a GED got a 91 on the ASVAB. I was in a room with 100 other applicants. How do you think I cheated? So the captain of the recruiting company had to come down and he put me in a closet in the recruiting office and made me retake the test. He's like, okay, well, obviously you didn't cheat. You have to take it again. So they took me back to Lansing, took it a second time and I scored a 90. All right, good. Here's your job. You can do infantry or cannon fire. And I was like, okay, not interested. And I went to walk away. Of course, that pissed him off because you know how much money we've spent. I don't care. <laughs> it sounds like a military mentality, though. Well, you know, and they're like, well, what do you want to do? And I'm like, something that's not going to get me killed. 
And they're like, well, you only have a GED, but I have a 91 ASVAB. What does that matter? Because if I was joining in the Navy, I could work on a nuclear submarine. If I was joining the Air Force, I could fly a plane. In the Army, you're telling me I can go out and crawl through the mud and get killed. There's got to be something better that you guys have than, than that. Well, we offered you cannon fired that's still getting shot at. <laughs> like, you know, shot at something that <laughs> isn't going to involve me having to go to some crappy country, stand in the heat and get shot at. And we went back and forth for two days. And I just refused to take a crappy job. And finally, they were like, we can make you a Patriot Missile Systems Operator. What the hell is that? So they showed me all this cool Top Gun type crap. I was like, oh, yeah, this looks cool. Shooting down studs, you know, you get your own. Yeah, that was a... <laughs> that was a that was a excuse my language but that was a bullshit pitch that they gave me <laughs> so I still ended up in a faraway place with people and shooting at getting shot at, and so. they <laughs> yeah it's, it's funny because our oldest son CJ um, when he was a little kid my brother had his his what was it he said exactly he said that boy's smart he's real smart I don't know if he's cure cancer smart or build a bomb in the basement smart smart <laughs> Yeah, going off to the military, and I was both of those. (laughs) When he went to the uh, when he went to the recruiter's office, I told him, "Don't go there without me." Like I've been in the military, I know this game, right? Right. Sergeant Mike, bless his soul, he was he was trying to get get a a body in a uniform, and he was trying to sell him on on some sort of missile repair systems, and 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 I told him, I said, "Be smarter than your old man, bud." Go do something where you can serve your country, and when you're done, your country can serve you. And uh, so he ended up. Uh, he, he went off to uh, a couple schools and ended up with his LPN degree. And right now, he is making mad money as as a nurse in yeah. the civilian world since he's been out. But you know, yeah, because because the job I did, I, I could I could go do it in the civilian world, but I had to go to like Fort Meade, Maryland, and work a quarter mile underground, and and I can't answer questions like "How was your day?" at the end of that at the end of the work exactly. day. So I went, no thanks, I don't want to do that as a civilian. I I had my time in; it was fun and all that. But but yeah, so the military has a lot of amazing options if you if you push through you know some of the, some of the BS that they hide it behind. But but yeah, it's it sounds like you uh you had an interesting time. Did you spend any time overseas, or were you in country most of the time? I was in country the whole time. I was at uh, Fort Sill, playing ah. around in the dirt and whatnot. I I ended up being in trouble more than I was actually doing my job because um, one, being a natural born comedian, I let my mouth get me into trouble that I shouldn't have gotten into and. A lot of the sergeants hated me because, you know, they're having a sergeant mentality. What do you think? I'm stupid. <laughs> really want me to answer that? <laughs> you know, is that a rhetorical question? Yeah. <laughs> so, you tell me to be honest. So, or, uh, yeah, are you sure you want me to be honest? Yeah. Let's yeah, not count but, Article 15s up here because um, you know. they told me that those went away at the end of tra- the training phases. So hopefully that there's no record left of those in my history. I don't know about you, but, but you know. Yeah. Like I, 
I managed an honorable discharge. How I managed it, I don't know. But um, from day one, I did basic training at Fort Dix, New Jersey. And when I when we got to Fort Dix, this was in 1989. So it was the old army, not the new army. Um, the bus hadn't even stopped moving yet. And about 12 drill sergeants jumped on the bus and they were screaming and people were climbing over the seats and out over each other. And I was just sitting there perfectly calm, just laughing. And the recruiter finally got to me and he's screaming at me. And I'm just looking at him with this almost diaphragmal look from Full Metal Jacket. And I'm laughing at him because stuff he's saying is hilarious. And he immediately, he's like, you know, he's like, we've got a medical case over here. This one thinks everything is funny. And I was like, dude, you're fucking hilarious. And get off the bus and they run us through all of this stuff. And I didn't flip out like a lot of people because one, I was prepared for it. Having the uncle that had gone to Vietnam and seen Full Metal Jacket a hundred times, I knew what was going to happen. I... I got into trouble because I didn't overreact or I didn't freak out like they said. So they thought that I didn't care or that I was just being a smart ass. And I didn't mean to be, but it's just kind of who I was. And, you know, I mean, it was, I reacted back and not always in the best way, uh, but I made it through. I imagine that right. as someone who has, you know, you've been through that many homes in the foster system, you probably already understood what chaos looked like and learned to operate yeah. inside of that chaos pretty well. Yeah. Like I, it wasn't anything to me. Like I lived out of a bank. I would go to foster homes and they would say, oh, there's your dresser over there. Put your clothes in a dresser. No, I'm good. I'm not going to be here that long. <laughs> what do you mean by that? trust me and I won't be here long enough to put my clothes in a dresser I'll just keep them in my in my backpack to wear you know and in a few days or a couple of weeks when y'all are sick of me I'll just be ready to go and um I I had that mentality for a long time like even well into adulthood you know I I still got my army rucksack and I had jeans rolled up and the boots in the side and shirts folded and and you know i could pick that rucksack up at any time and let's go <laughs> ready to go so. my alice pack is right over there <laughs> <laughs> i don't have any clothes back then because she would kill me if i tried to leave her with all these crazy kids but, uh, yeah. but yeah i feel you i hey, feel as you as long as you take the kids with you you can go <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just playing. But but going back to something, you know, you said you had been in 20 some odd homes and then, you know, then you age out and, you know, it's like you said, what do you have? You know, where do you go? And so many kids are faced with that today, mm-hmm. you know, and that's part of what's wrong with our system. And we have so many kids from the system that, you know, end up on the streets, homeless, no one to care about them. Yeah. And a huge percentage of those kids end up in the uh, criminal justice system. Yeah. Did, did you find yourself there or did you, uh, did you manage to? Oh yeah. <laughs> I've uh, never went to prison, um, but oh, no. I've definitely 
you know, spent my fair share of nights in county jail for the most ridiculous of things. Um, you know, even, even when I was in foster care, I would get kicked out of foster homes, not even meaning to. Or I would get suspended from school over things that I didn't mean to get suspended over. And it was the most ridiculous stuff. And then foster parents would overreact to it. Well, we can't deal with this. And you go to the new foster home, you know, and it's just like, I'm not trying to be disruptive. Like there was one instance I was in Clarkston, Michigan. And this was probably my ninth or 10th foster home. People were really nice. I actually liked it there. I was trying to stay out of trouble. I got suspended within 30 minutes of starting school because when we walked through the door, the first thing I noticed, the principal was a doppelganger for Tackleberry from Police Academy. I know who that is. (laughs) You're bringing out the 80s in me. (laughs) Yeah, like when I walked through the door, I just looked at him and was like, oh, crap. And I, I went to walk away and the kid walked past me and he's like, he hit me and went like this and he goes, yeah, we call him Tack. And I was like, I'm going to get in so much trouble with this. So I went and I got breakfast. The lunchroom was kitty corner from the office. I sat down, was eating my breakfast. Some girl come over, sat down, started talking to me. We were having a conversation. Of course, the rich yuppie kid had, you know, the, the Zach from, Bayside had to come over and, you know, who was I and asking stupid questions. And I told him to piss off and he slammed his hand down on my chocolate milk and just milk everywhere. So I jumped up and kicked him in the face and I managed, I broke a school record for being suspended before you actually even started school. So, <laughs> um, but a couple of kids that would be impressed with that record. I, Come back from that. And I was there for a good amount of while. I was there almost two months and hadn't gotten in any more trouble. I was in gym class. And at the end of gym class, our teacher always allowed us to kind of stand outside of the gym by where the showcases were, the trophies and all of that. We had a sub one day and we come out of the shower and we were standing out there and she come out. She had an attitude. What are you doing in the hallway? waiting for the bell. I didn't say you could stand in the hallway. Okay. We didn't know we had to. We stand here every single day. You know, this is our routine. Get back into the gym. I looked at my friend and I go, man, that sucks. She pulled me to the office. I want him suspended for insubordination. I'm looking at him like, are you serious? Like, I said, that sucks. So, of course, Tackleberry, because it was my second time. I'm suspending you for 10 days. Dude, are you serious? Like, 10 days for saying that sucks to a teacher. Like, bro, it's me. It's not even the worst thing I said before 8 a.m., okay? Like, (laughs) come on, man. Like, he was adamant. So, he called my foster mom. She come from work. Who'd you kick in the face this time? I I didn't touch anybody. I didn't do anything. So when he told her what happened, oh, she was livid. She was so mad that he had pulled her out of work over something so ridiculous. She started cussing him up. 
but you know, had to drive me all the way back to the house and take the day off work and all this other crap. And it was just to the point where, you know, diversions decided you're being too disruptive in this home. And I'm like, I've gotten into trouble twice in almost three months. Like that's a record for me. Okay. <laughs> no, you got to go to the new foster home. Okay, great. So you pack up, move down the road and, you know, it was just whatever. So I just, I got used to it. Like it was, it was always some little thing that, I don't know, just, you could tell the majority of them in it were strictly about the money. Um, and that was annoying. I, you know, I had one foster home who she did not cook. Everything she bought was the frozen prepared meals. Um, you know, the, the banquet meals. And just when you were hungry, you got a banquet meal out of the freezer and that's what you had for dinner. And I started cooking. I didn't say you could cook. Well, I'm sick of banquet meals, you know, <laughs> like <laughs> buy some real food. I don't get paid enough to buy you real food. You shouldn't fucking be a foster parent. Excuse my language, but you know, part of the requirement of being a foster parent is that you actually feed us. Well, I'm feeding you. No, you're not feeding us. You're you're buying garbage that costs, you know, not even a tenth of what you're being paid to buy meals. Like frozen banquet meals do not meet the requirement. Of, <laughs> you don't meet the requirements for what I'm going to eat for sure. Yeah, you know, and I'm like, look. Every once in a blue moon, I don't mind microwaving a banquet meal, but I don't want to eat it twice a day, seven days a week. Can't say as I blame you there. Yeah. Yeah. So we ended up in a big fight over that and I ended up being moved. And then there was the family who were the snake handling ultra religious ones. And the requirement was, is if they went to church, you went to church. Okay. Awesome. Went to church. I was perfectly fine in the back row. And then they busted out the rattlesnakes. <laughs> I'm out. <laughs> Lost me at rattlesnakes. <laughs> no, there's an old Jerry Clara bit where he's standing up in front of a church and talking and they bring out the snakes. And he says, he looks at the preacher and says, where is the back door? He says, we don't have a back door. He says, whereabouts would you like a back door? <laughs> yeah. You know, I'm in the same out. camp with you. I, I would have been gone. You know, I got home. I called Kendra. I'm like, I got to go. She goes, why? I was like, they're Pentecostal. What's wrong with that? They talk to snakes. She's like, excuse me. I was like, we went to church. They had rattlesnakes. Kendra's like, I'll be there in the morning. They ended up losing their foster care license because they didn't tell anyone that, hey, they were crazy snake handling hillbillies. Yeah. yeah I, I'm not one to, to give to anybody too much trouble over their, uh, their personal belief systems, but I ain't going with you. If y'all play with snakes in church, that's not my, my theory of, uh, of any kind of, uh, fit, test of faith. Um, cause yeah, yeah. I'm with you. I, I, I don't run for anything, but that, that, but I'd make it a sex an exception for that. Yeah. Well, well, Kendra was like, well, I had no idea that they would be crazy hillbillies like that. And I was like, really? His name being Robert E. Lee. Did you kind of miss that? <laughs> <laughs> and she's like, 
excuse me? And I was like, his name is Robert E. Lee. She goes, oh, I didn't know that. He just goes by Bob. I was like, you didn't look on the application and see that his name was Robert E. Lee III. I didn't maybe give you a pause that, you know, Robert E. Lee from Louisiana. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, well, they're from Michigan. They're originally from Louisiana. The, the only you know, General Lee I, I really identify with is the car that used to fly through grain silos and stuff on TV on on Saturday mornings, you know, because, <laughs> you know, the Duke boys were were right. all kinds of fun for a young guy like me. And, yeah, I mean, I love I love Duke's Hazard, and, and it wasn't really anything, but it was just, I mean, come on, there's, there's certain things that even as a teenager, like, look, I'm not going to put myself in jeopardy for your craziness. I'm not going to starve for your craziness. I'm not going to be pushed around or treated like a second class citizen because you choose to treat us like we're furniture here, you know? And when I got towards the end of being in foster care, I was very lucky. I ended up with two foster homes back to back that were two of the most amazing set of foster parents. Um, one, unfortunately, uh, was killed in a car accident. So um, I moved to the final foster home. And the final foster home I was in, uh, they were, he was 76 and she was 72. Uh, they had been foster parents for 48 years. Wow. That's a and, lot. Yeah. And they had had 165 foster kids. Um. I was number 166 and of those 166 foster kids they had had 120 of them had been special needs uh, kids of some form. And they were phenomenal people. Just, uh, I was so blessed. They're the ones who helped me find myself, put me on the right track, got help me get my GED, get into the army. And um, if it wouldn't have been for them, I'd, I'd have gone to prison. There's no doubt in my mind. <laughs> I would have self-destructed. Um, do you have any contact with them at all or anything? Um, unfortunately, they're both passed now. Uh, they were, he was 76 at the time and that was in 1989. Um, so, I mean, they were, yeah, they were, pretty well beyond even, you know, the age that you would even see a foster parent be. Um, I don't, I don't think it's pretty common to see a 76 year old foster parent, um, but they were amazing. And I had contact with them right up until their death. Uh, they actually left me a set of cabins uh, in their will. And I lost the cabins to the state of Michigan because and the entire upper peninsula of Michigan, the state of Michigan, decided to build a prison next to my property, um, which meant that because my cabin was within 500 yards of the fence line, I couldn't uh, I couldn't have any guns or ammunition on my property. I couldn't have any four wheelers or recreational vehicles because they were all a hazard if there was a breakout. So what am I supposed to do with this property? Then it's useless to me. The state's like, well, we'll buy it from you. Awesome. How much are you going to give me? We'll give you $24,000. It's worth 120,000. 
good luck with that. Are you going to try to fight the state of Michigan? <laughs> they have a lot more attorneys than I had. So, yeah, there'd have been a lot more time in the law libraries learning how to fight the state, right? Yeah, yeah. You you don't win eminent domain cases, so I took my measly little twenty thousand dollars and I went away and I, uh, yeah. <laughs> but I I did I had contact with them right up until their death and. Um, amazing, amazing people. So many, so many lives that were changed because of them. So I, uh, I thank God every day that he kind of, you know, you went through all of this crap. Here's somebody that can save you from yourself and, uh, <laughs> kind of put you on a positive path. So, um, but that that's what we want kids to hear. We we want them yeah. to hear that there's people out there that yeah. that care and are gonna take the time, you know, and unfortunately we don't hear that enough. Yeah. You know, for I, um, my friend Steve is a foster parent and he they him and his wife actually adopted a family of five. Um their Steve was friends with the father. He worked with them and they were killed in a car accident and they were getting ready to split the children up and steve said we'll take them you don't have a big enough house steve's like fine we'll build on <laughs> so they rented a bigger house while theirs was redone and they went through all the process and they uh you know they've got seven kids now in their house and you know, Steve said, I never intended to be a foster parent, but I wasn't going to see these kids split up and shoved all over the, the place, you know, so I. Uh, well, and too often that happens with sibling groups, even, yeah. even when it comes to a sibling group of two, unfortunately, mm-hmm. it happens so often because there's not homes. And when there are homes, they're already overcrowded. They don't have the room. Right. Because contrary to popular belief, you can't just have 20 or 30 foster kids. There's rules and there's regulations for every state. Yeah. You know. And a lot of them don't want teenage boys. Some of them only want girls. Some only want babies. Yeah. I've, I've seen horrible people and really great people in the system. Um, it kind of is what it is. You take it in turn, but definitely need you know um i won't say the system is completely broken but there's a lot of things about the system that need to be fixed and looked at on a different scale and you're right i mean there's some things that work but there's a lot of things that don't yeah you know and we we got to get more people out there that are caring and paying attention to these things yeah and, and just more workers to handle the number of cases that, you know, I remember when I had Kendra as my worker, um, Kendra had 139 cases that she handled and you just, you can't expect someone to handle 139 cases on a daily basis. There's just no human way to, handle that many cases and know what is going on with every single one across the board. 
you oh, know? absolutely. Yeah. And, I mean, that's why we, we see the things that we do in the news and the kids that slip through the cracks. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of people don't understand what the job of a caseworker is. Right. You know, 139 kids, that's 139 visits a month. Yep. That's not court papers. That's not any court appearances. That's, yeah, yeah. That's just court appearances, scheduling that's doctor's not, appointments. Yeah. That's not visitation with each kid's parents. Yeah. And unfortunately, our social workers are not paid anything. Yep. And right? that's and exactly. We can't keep them. That's exactly what I was thinking is, you know, I've learned just enough to know that in our area, we're in Missouri, and in Missouri, I believe a a caseworker makes 30-something thousand a year. Like 32. Yeah, on the low end, so. Where are you guys at in Missouri? Well, we're west of St. Louis a ways. Okay. I I lived in, I was in the National Guard. I was actually at uh, Fort Leavenworth. I was in the Missouri National Guard and. I lived in Popular Bluff, down in the boot heel. Ah, Popular Bluff. Yeah, all the way down in the boot heel, almost. uh, Yeah, way out there in the uh, sticks. Yeah, over by uh, Cape Cape Girarda and and, uh, Dexter and all of that. Well, if you leave that and drive an hour or two west out into the middle of absolute nowhere, that's where Amanda's family comes from. We've been there a couple (laughs) times, and it's a drive. But uh, I I had a friend who lived in Rolla, so. I'm familiar with. Uh, I used to live in Rollins for a time. Yeah, <laughs> that is a uh, that is as close to a wrong turn movie as you are ever going to get if you get lost out that kind oh, of way. Yeah. Like not the people themselves, yeah. but just like uh, yeah. the first time I drove up there. I don't know. Some of the people are pretty questionable too. <laughs> yeah, like the first time I drove up there, the only thing I could think of is, please God, don't let me get lost because. I swear to God, I've seen this in a wrong turn movie. Like, you know, like, like, I swear I've seen that house in a horror movie. I don't know which one. I'm pretty sure I've seen that house in a horror movie. <laughs> but, yeah. Yeah. So um, we're out here, even in rural Missouri, where, where there's not, you know, the cost of living, the wages and all that, mm-hmm. you know, isn't real high necessarily, but still $30,000 a year is yeah. not enough to sustain no. a family. And so they wonder why we have these caseworkers who have these huge caseloads. They work for about six months, get burned out, and go somewhere and do something else mm-hmm. because they just can't, they can't live that life. It's well, too much. And, and not only that, you know, a lot of people don't think about it, but these caseworkers, they take their cases home. Mm-hmm. They internalize that trauma and feelings of hopelessness and not being able to do or help a child the way they feel like they should. And, you yeah. know, I, I got to give mad props to, to the caseworkers. You know, they're doing a job that is so completely, completely hard, but the turnover is crazy, you know. And that's the thing right there is, um, the caseworkers, just like very much like being a CNA or being uh, a, uh, a nurse in uh, like the NICU, you know, they will tell you when I did CNA training, they said, don't get attached to the patients. Don't get attached. Well, when you care for someone for eight hours a day, every single day, it's impossible not to talk to them, not to get attached. When you're dealing with guys that were in World War II, they were in Vietnam, they had these incredible life experiences, incredible stories. You can't not get attached to them. 
And I had one gentleman who he was like a grandfather to me and I never intended him to be, but I came to work one day and he had passed and I just, it crushed me. And I was like, you know, I can't, I can't do this. I can't do this every single day that just too much mentally. And the woman was just like, well, I told you not to get attached to him. And I was like, you know what? You sit up in your tower doing your administrative duties. You're not out on this floor. You know, you don't deal with it, the daily stuff. Well, and everybody deserves somebody to care about them and to give exactly. them some dignity and some kindness. You know, for a long time, um, I took care of four ladies with special needs and disabilities. I was in their home, you know, every day to day. Those are my ladies, but they're yeah. not just my ladies. That's that's my family, yeah. you know, and everybody deserves somebody to get attached. And as people, we crave that. Yeah. I'll tell you what, the, the last foster home I was in, I... Uh, I had never worked with special Olympics or anything in my life. And um, my knowledge of people with special needs or down syndrome, anything like that. Um, it was simply, it was high school kids using derogatory terms and stuff like that. And um, one thing I was very good at in high school, I was very good at soccer. And when I got to that foster home, they had a guy there. He was, he was about 22, 23 years old, but mentally he was like 12. And Mrs. Davis said, Mikey's team needs a soccer coach for their special Olympics team. Can you coach the team? And I was like, I don't know the first thing about coaching a bunch of special needs kids to play soccer. You know, like I play at a competitive level. So I was like, you know what? I'll go watch him just to see whatever. And I went there and it was the most life-changing thing that ever happened to me. The joy, the pure, the pure unadulterated love that they had for each other and for other people. It blew my mind. Like here's this group of people who have, all of these challenges and they don't have a hateful bone in their body. They don't know how to, to be hateful. They don't know how to be anything other than perfectly content and happy. And I was like, you know what? I have to be the coach of this team because I couldn't pass that opportunity up. And it, it really probably was the single most defining moment of my teenage life is coaching them and learning unconditional love and unconditional support and seeing the joy on their face when they learn to do something new. And um, it, it gave me a mentality like, like, look, if they can do it, I can do it. <laughs> you know, if they can smile through all of the challenges that life has thrown at them, I can smile more. I can laugh more. I can not take life so deadly serious. And um, it did change my life a lot. Like it, I was a lot more chill 
<laughs> I guess uh, after that. So I uh, was very happy that that was presented to me as well. Sounds like you've had a lot of really interesting life-changing experiences. I am kind of curious. So, um, you know, did you ever have an opportunity or take an, the opportunity to reconnect with your, your, uh, your biological family? Um, I actually share a house with my mother. Uh, she's downstairs now. Uh, we have a great relationship. My father, I've spoken to him probably three times in 35 years. Um, my father and I, we don't fight. We just kind of, we have different, very different views on life, what life is and what you should do with life. Um, the, the number one thing for me, I have always said, I will not be my father. My father, I remember my father saying, I love you one time in my life. July 8th, 1978, 8.37 p.m. <laughs> I remember it because it is the only time that man ever said, I love you to me. And I always said, I'm not going to be that man. I'm not going to make my kids go through life never knowing that I love them, never knowing that I'm proud of them, never knowing that I'm there for them no matter what. And I've never broken that rule or promise. I've been here for my children, no matter how difficult it's been, no matter what it costs me financially or job-wise. I've had jobs that I've quit that, you know, sorry, dude, got to go. Well, you can't just quit your job, look. But you are my kids, and I'm not putting you over my kids. I can get another job. I can't get another kid. You know, and it's just, that's been my biggest thing going through life is at the end of the day, if you don't remember me for anything else other than being a good parent, I'm okay with that. Because that all I want to be remembered for truthfully like you know if I write a great book or make a great movie and you remember me for that awesome I'll take it but if my tombstone says nothing more than amazing father I'm okay with that too you know because that's what my life is about is being a dad and you know that's the most important thing to me so and it all comes from what I dealt with is just, I'll make damn sure my kids never have to go through that. <laughs> you know, no kid should have to go through it, but I don't have the ability to stop other kids from going through it, but I can damn sure make sure mine never go through it. So um, sorry, I don't mean to cry. I just, uh, my kids are, they're, they're everything to me, you know, and I've raised, I've raised eight kids either through my biological kids or through stepchildren. Um, so parenting is, it's a big thing for me. 
Yeah, it's amazing how how sometimes you know some people have bad things happen in life and and they turn to horrible people because of it, and some people have bad things in life and they say, "I choose better for my future." And it sounds like you've really chosen that that better road. You've learned from from the yeah. bad choices of other adults and decided to become a, a good adult in your own right. I try. I mean, I make mistakes. I'm not perfect, and but you know, even with this divorce I went through last year. I was adamant about, I want sole custody across the board, period. That's it. <laughs> she could have every physical piece of furniture, the bank accounts, everything. I want sole custody of my son. And the judge is like, why are you so adamant about that? Because the circumstances surrounding this situation right now, I will not have my son subjected to that circus that she's calling a life. He will not suffer mentally because she chose to turn her life into a mess. If my son has nothing else in life, either than peace of mind and a safe home, good. I can replace the money. I can buy more furniture. I can get another car. <laughs> you know, I would take a financial beating. Want my son. And I won. I got sole custody with supervised visitations for her. So, you know, my son is with me. He's happy. He's the most joyful kid you'll ever meet. And that's all that's important to me. <laughs> so. Well, and that's what really matters at the end of the day. You know, mm -hmm. I've met many people who, you know, I've, I've sat at the deathbed of a few men and I've not met one of them yet who laid there and complained about, you know, not having done enough work or gotten enough toys and they wanted to get a yacht before they died. <laughs> not one of them talked about any of that sort of stuff. You know, it was that legacy they were leaving behind them in the form of, of children and family and the things that mattered at the end of the, at the end of yeah. life were the people. Family is everything to me. Like I having nice stuff is, is awesome. And I've got a lot of nice stuff, but I, I would literally give every bit of it away. If it meant the safety of my kids, their well-being, their mental health, whatever. I, none of it means anything if they're in any kind of danger. So you know, it's just, it is what it is at the end of the day. And my friends know that my friends know people who know me know you can test me in 99 ways. The one way you can't test me is my kids. Don't ever, ever put my kids in danger or the line of fire because my reaction will not be a reaction. You like, like I, <laughs> you know, like you want me to fight. My kids are the one way to do it. Like right now, I'll, you know, I'll go from Winnie the Pooh to Kodiak Killer and that quick over <laughs> my kids, man. Like, yeah, I yeah. have one one last question bef uh, before mm -hmm. we jump out of here. Um, you know, I, I talk to a lot of dads, uh, part of a dad's group in the leadership team there. And, and so I meet dads from across the country, shoot, across the world, honestly. Um, and some of these guys, I'm going to tell you that Australian accent is probably the hardest one for me to pull apart so far. But, you know, I talk to a lot of dads and the most common thing I see across the board is guys who have had that that big father wound in their own childhood. 
Um, and obviously, you know, you've talked about your own. Have you been able to to work through that in your own life and move forward, or is that something you're still working on? Um, I think it's a little of both. Like, I don't think about it a lot. Um, my dad's a truck driver, fifty two years. I wanted to be a rock star. That was my plan A, my plan B, and my plan C. Um, I did it up until my sons were born where it wasn't feasible. And I always said, I'm not going to be a truck driver. I ended up being a truck driver and I did that for a number of years. And then it tried to kill me and (laughs) decided, okay, let's try something else where chains aren't flying at your head. Um, I don't really think about it a lot. I, you know, my dad is my dad. I love my dad because he is my father. He gave me life. He taught me a lot of life lessons, but there is that animosity there. And I simply refuse to let it affect who I am as a dad. Um, I keep it inside. So it's there. Absolutely. And I hate that it's there and I would love to have the opportunity to work it out and whatnot but he's not that tight like my dad you could sit at a table with my dad for two hours and he'll say four words you know like he spent 50 52 years alone driving truck so my dad spends 24 hours a day alone in the truck for the most part he's okay with not saying anything from one truck driver to another i'll tell you (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we we do spend a lot of time sitting in a truck with a lot of silence in, in our own heads for sure. Yeah, I exactly. And, and I get where he's coming from. He's always been that way, but my dad is just, he's a rare breed. Like he, you're not going to change his mind. He's a Leo, you know? And like I said, he's, he's just, he wants what he wants and you're not going to change his mind. Nothing you say is going to change our mind. And, it's frustrating to me because, hey, this is your grandchild. And he's like, okay, how are you? <laughs> okay, gee, you know, don't don't seem so thrilled to meet your grandchild, you know. And it's just, it, it is who he is. So I quit trying. Truthfully, I, I quit trying a long time ago. And I concentrate on what I can change. You know, I concentrate on what I can be positive about so that they have positivity in their life. Um, They've met my dad. They know my dad, but I don't go to his house. He doesn't come to mine. We don't talk on the phone or anything like that. Um, His new wife that he's been married to for many years now, I graduated with her. So, you know, he's 20, 21 years older than his wife so it just it kind of is what it is really truthfully i mean that's about the only way i can put it is i just i love him he's my dad but i don't want to be him like i'm and i'm not like there's really very few ways that i'm like my father other than maybe i'm a disciplinarian you know as far as the one thing that I've made sure of with my kids is to learn respect 
for people and things, you know, um, work hard for it and you'll appreciate it a lot more than if it's just given to you freely. Um, have respect for other people's property and time, you know, uh, one rule my great grandfather had, and I live by this rule. Uh, if you're 15 minutes early, you're 15 minutes late. <laughs> he was military, wasn't he? <laughs> Actually, he wasn't. Um, really? But that was that was his rule of thumb. So I am always 15 minutes early, no matter what I do. And that's gone on to my kids: is don't show up late. Don't. It's it's a disrespectful to people and their time. Be there. Be prepared. Be ready to go. Yeah, whether it's a job, whether it's a job interview, whatever it is, just let them know that you're there and you're ready to go and get it done and move on. And, um, you know, this way I've raised my kids is just respect is the biggest, biggest thing to me is you're not going to get to respect back all the time. But, you know, if you put the respect out there, then you'll get good karma. If they do bad stuff, then that's on them, you know, like let, let them deal with the negative repercussions of being that bad person. So, yeah. well, CJ, I want to thank you for, for coming in here today and telling your story because yeah. these are the stories that people need to hear. Like, you know, your, your story has a lot of horrible foster parents that were involved in it and I get it. I don't like those stories. I don't like them a bit. I'm not going to lie, but nobody likes to hear those stories. And that's hopefully more people will hear stuff like this and choose to become that good foster parent who choose to, to spend their life's energy in doing something yeah. that will affect a kid for a lifetime and yeah. in doing so change generations, literally generations, because I, I'm just going to say, I'm going to, I think it's entirely possible your kids would have been different kids if you hadn't had some good influences in your life towards the end of your foster journey. Oh, absolutely. I would have never had kids. I, I'd have been, there's no doubt in my mind without the Davises, I'd have gone to prison or I'd have been dead. Um, I was destructive and I didn't care. I had no, there was no point in life to me. Like my goal was destruction and I was very good at it. Very disruptive, very, you know, even not even physical destruction, but just being in a classroom. You know, I, I was the kid who they showed us the miracle worker movie in a class, Helen Keller, the cute little blind girl who learned to read and write. Hey, did you know when Helen Keller grew up, she was a hardcore communist who wrote three books about overthrowing the U S government. This was in 1986 couldn't use the word communist back then. It was a bad word. So thrown out of class, taken to the office because I was disruptive. How, how did you even know that? I read a lot. You shouldn't be reading those kind of books. Why are you telling a kid that he shouldn't be reading books? Like that's the most asinine thing I've ever heard. You should be telling kids to read books. Smarter kids means a smarter society. A smarter society means we're better off, you know? So it's, I, I just, I run against people like that all through my teenage years. So I was angry all the time because I had to deal with stupid people. And the more I was angry, the more I was destructive or disruptive. And 
I went from foster home to foster home to foster home to foster home because of it. Because nobody wanted the smart ass kid or the sarcastic kid or the kid who would never shut up or the kid who, you know, <laughs> was just going to be a pain in their ass, basically. So, <laughs> you know, it's, that's kind of the story of my life, you know, is like, you well, know, it seems like you've turned that around quite a bit. Yeah. I know we, um, what we talked before we, we jumped into this, you have a few things going on in your life. Some things yeah. that you like to do. Um, you have a couple of your own podcast and a, and a, a YouTube channel website. Yeah. Why, don't, why don't you put and all the, I'll make certain all these are in the show notes. So if anybody wants to, to go find CJ stuff, you'll find links to it in the show notes, but why don't you tell everybody where they can find it? Yeah. If you go on YouTube, uh, you can find me music. God reacts. I do reaction videos. Uh, right now it's music, a lot of Japanese metal, a lot of stuff from all over the world, but uh, we are going to get into food stuff. We're going to get into weird drinks and uh, I, I'm i obsessed with Asian stuff. They're going to see me eating all kinds of weird noodles and hot stuff and uh, drinks and that kind of stuff from the Philippines and Thailand and Japan and China and all of that. Um, I have a podcast called The Noise Report where I interview really cool and interesting people a lot of rock stars uh i've interviewed lloyd kaufman uh who did the toxic avenger movies um i have interviewed uh a lot of my big musical heroes i uh i've interviewed you know authors who are just starting out i i don't care how famous you are it's all about life stories and life experiences and sharing those and uh, bettering each other through learning about different cultures and different life experiences because, uh, Hey, maybe I have a piece of knowledge you need. Maybe you have a piece of knowledge I need. And that's how you learn. That's how you become a better person is through knowledge and knowledge should be shared freely and openly all the time. So, um, those are my main two things that you can find me. If you just look up Music God CJ playing online, I'm all over the place. A riot on the set. Riot on the set media.rocks is my main website. Music reviews, um, all of that fun stuff where I ramble about music and you know, stuff that I love, stuff that I hate, stuff that I make fun of. <laughs> um you know, uh, imagine George Carlin as a music reviewer and that's kind of what i go for most of the time but yeah i miss george carlin oh man so far ahead of his time uh john panette is the one that i miss so much uh john panette was i got to meet john panette and actually uh take him out to a food festival and uh just such an amazing person i i was absolutely devastated when john died that uh you know he just a, a true, true, amazing human being. So, yeah, I always enjoyed his stuff. Yeah, you go now. <laughs> you came three hour. <laughs> but yeah, my yeah. favorite comedian of all time by far. But George is up there as well. George, just because you know, knowledge. <laughs> and George was George you know, was an interesting guy, and I would have loved yeah. to hear his take on today's culture but oh my god like, i think it he may, would be losing his mind yeah. with everything going on like george and george and sam kennison both 
Like I would, those are the two comedians that if I could bring them back, I would bring those two back. Cause I would love to hear their take on everything going on, you know, Carlin cause of the more political side, but Kennison just cause you know, the music side and the movie side and the, the whole take on Disney and everything they have going on. Kinnison would just be losing his mind for it. Like, you know, like, <laughs> so. Yes. Yes. It's, it's sad that, that a lot of our heroes in, in our culture have, are starting to pass away now, but you know, that's the way that the world works and, and we're just going to move through that period of life. But yeah, thank you so much for your time though. You didn't tell thank me you guys before. for having me, man. I, I really, I don't get to go on shows like this that often. Like I, I get to talk about music on a lot of shows, you know, and kind of flex my musical knowledge, but I don't get to talk about the deeper stuff or the more interesting stuff or to really share life experiences and kind of like, look, even through the bad, you can come out the other side and make good of it. So um, I'm, I'm very thankful that you guys allowed me to do this. Okay, Foster Care Nation, thank you for listening to CJ's story. Now take his knowledge and wisdom to heart so you can create love and healing in your family and community. Be sure to come back next week. We have new episodes every Tuesday. If you'd like to share your story as a guest, you can reach us at jason at fostercarenation.com. You can connect with other like-minded people on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash fostercareuj. Don't forget, we have a Patreon account where you can support our mission for as little as $5 a month. It's at patreon.com slash fostercarenation. The links to everything are in the show notes in your podcast player or at fostercarenation.com. And as always, you are so super awesome. I thank you guys. Thank you for listening. Thanks, thanks, thanks. Unparalleled Studios. Studios.